This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Sarah Chahaya, a specialist in contemporary fiction and film. What do we want when we revisit a beloved story? Sarah Chihaya suggests we're drawn back by contradictory desires. On the one hand, we want to relive what we experienced the first time, but we also want something fresh and new. From recent movie sequels and remakes to the experimental novel Life After Life, Sarah shows how revisiting familiar stories can be a cynical ploy to make money, but can also be an underappreciated source of artistic inspiration. Sarah Chihaya, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk about books and films that revisit familiar stories. And when I was thinking about this topic, I was reminded of a story that my cousin told me about her mother, who reread War and Peace every decade of her life. Once a decade, she would reread War and Peace. And apparently would get completely different things out of it each time. Um, So that's a very literal way to revisit a Mm -hmm. familiar story. Um, But I'm wondering, like, what do you think people want when they reread something that they already know? So that story you just told is a very often retold story in itself. I think a lot of people have that book. There's this really wonderful part in Ali Smith's book of sort of essays, sort of short stories called Artful, where she talks about how books are always things that give form to our lives and that we can see how we sort of fit into them at different times. And so in the same way that you never step into the same river twice, you never step into the same book twice. So that idea of you can never step into the same river twice, that already contains that kind of paradox of can't possibly be the same as your first reading and yet something that draws it was something in that first reading that draws you back mm-hmm. that's it, to me what's really interesting and I think that's very much my like personal take I'm not sure what this says about me as a as a human being <laughs> my, my feeling about rereading is that it's a perverse thing right oh really the, yeah because it is always these two things at once right where you well you want it to be the same You want it to be the same pleasure, the pleasure of the first time you read it. But you can never have that pleasure back, and you know you can't have it back. And the more you reread, in fact, the further it recedes into the distance. And yet, if it were exactly the same, that would also be a kind of disappointment, right? You want it to be different. You want it to be repetition with a difference, always. Mm. So there's a sort of sense in which, on the one hand, what draws you to reread something is that it's familiar, but then you also, you want it to be fresh you want to experience it afresh as though it kind of were the first time again Mm -hmm. like you didn't already know it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so I understand that you're not focused on literally rereading the same book um but instead you're interested in books and films that revisit a pre-existing story Mm -hmm. um and one of the cases of that being recent Disney remakes so (laughs) (laughs) could we start there like what which Disney remake did you see and what was your reaction to it? Sure. So yeah, the way I'm thinking of it encompasses different ways in which rereading comes out in creative expression. So how rereading becomes projects of rewriting or somehow re-engaging with the text. 
whether it's through reenactment, which is the remake. The second way I think you can sort of revisit creatively as a writer is through actions that I've classified as narrative augmentation, uh, which would be after-the-fact sequels written by new authors, like the various takes on Jane Austen. Death Comes to Pemberley by P.D. James, or, so or even like, like Pride and Zombies, right? Like, okay. the, like these things that like somehow augment the universe, right? Franchise expansions. So there's the pre-existing story from Jane Austen, and then these new novels are telling a new story or a story that's sort of adjacent to it? Is uh, that right? Both. Yeah. Either adding on, mm. uh, there are a number of Pride and Prejudice sequels, or adding into in the model of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, uh, which I have not read. <laughs> so that's one way you can do it. And then the third is the kind of weirder books, which are books that rewrite themselves as they go. Okay, um, well, I hope we'll get we can, to that yeah, eventually. I hope we get to that eventually, too. Let's it's, it's very wacky. So the Disney remake. I wrote a short piece for the LA Review of Books last year um, about two projects of revisitation that came out felicitously on the same day. Re- revisitations of very different films. So the first was Trainspotting 2, and the second was Disney's uh, live-action Beauty and the Beast. So the short story is that I really loved Danny Boyle's second take on Trainspotting, actually, which is not a remake, but a sequel, and the sequel that revisits in a way that is very specific and I think historically reflective in an interesting way. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, so it's not just a kind of greatest hits of train spotting, which is what the trailer had made it out to be. The trailer I found very worrisome because it was Iggy Pop's Lust for Life, like the anthem of train spotting, playing over a um, voiceover that sounds very much like the famous opening voiceover of the original train spotting. And a number so of. So it was just revisiting in a way that was kind of derivative. Yeah, it seemed like a real ploy, you know, like if you liked the first train spotting, you will like it again. They're just older. <laughs> but I did like the second train spotting very much because it it played contrary to a lot of those impulses in its specific engagement. There are a lot of clips from the original train spotting that are embedded in the new one and sort of analyzed in interesting ways within the logic of the film, which I thought was an interesting move. Like um, like sort of flashbacks yes, presented yeah. as flashbacks within the film, but they're scenes from the mm-hmm. original. And there are a lot of references also that don't get fulfilled. Moments where you almost hear, you hear the first chord of Lust for Life, but you don't get to hear the whole song till the end of the film. So um, it's actually playing with the sort of like basic desire to just have the same thing exactly as it was before and kind of teasing you with that. I think that that's what's interesting about it. He knows that that's what we want, but he also knows that that's what will spoil it. Um, So that's why that was was interesting. That was the good revisitation I saw on that day. So then I went to see Beauty and the Beast and I found it deeply upsetting, just really troubling. The original Disney Beauty and the Beast Mm. was a very formative text for me as a child, as a bookish girl. (laughs) It was very important to me. Yeah, the main character of that spends a lot of time in a library, from what I remember. Yeah, and she's, you know, said to be peculiar and, you know, has brown hair. <laughs> like, there, there are a lot of things that speak to the peculiar child who reads a lot of books um, in that original. So I wasn't sure what they were up to with it. The very cynical answer is that, obviously, they're up to this commercial enterprise where they know they'll make tons of money. But it also seems as though they're attempting something. They're trying to make this kind of new format that 
is to me a kind of uncanny experience of replication, right? Where there are scenes that are so precisely replicated with a combination of CGI and live action actors. Like they look exactly they look like exactly the original. The <laughs> like there's something very weird about it. To me, it was unsettling because it was a remake that was not attempting a reinterpretation. It's, it was too close to it the It was too original. close, but the greatest accomplishment, I think, of a remake is a remake that does greater interpretive work, that, that does the almost impossible task of taking an original object, especially a like, deeply significant object, and making it different. Mm-hmm. So actually, first of all, let's check on this tea. Um, and you have provided us with donuts, which instantly makes you our favorite ever guest. <laughs> Um, so should we try and, I don't know if this is maybe a little too crowded, um, but let's see. So thank you. Give you a little coaster. So, um, how does this apply to works of literature? Like, uh, can we talk about some of these novels that are more experimental in the way that they kind of work with revisiting and retelling, um, familiar stories? Sure. Yeah, so this is actually what my current book is about. Um, I'm really interested in texts that are hung up on something. The title of my book, the working title, which has changed many, many times, is right now Fixations, uh, because all of the books that I'm looking at are fixated on an event or on a sort of historical problem, whether that is a real historical problem or one that is fictional. So can you give an example of this type of narrative? So Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, um, which is a book that was published in 2013, and I highly recommend if you have not read it. It's a really, uh, it's a really pleasurable read. So Life After Life is a family saga about this woman and her brother who are born in Edwardian England. Ursula, the protagonist of Life After Life, is born in 1910. That's the moment we keep returning to. And what happens is that we follow this character through a series of misadventures. She dies at the end of all of them. It almost has the feeling of a choose-your-own-adventure, except we are not doing the choosing. First, she's, she's not born. She's a stillbirth. Then she's born but only lives to early childhood. Then she's born and lives a little bit further, and so on and so forth. It's a novel that proceeds in fits and starts. So it's kind of like a, a video game where like, each time you yeah, die, you sort of you loop back to the beginning. Again. Yeah, so it sort of continues along those lines. And along the way, she has these various large historical encounters. Like One of the subplots of the novel is, will she kill Hitler? Hmm. So um, does she ever kill Hitler? No. Maybe that's a spoiler. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I um, guess we could have known that. <laughs> so I can see as, as a reader of that book, you're revisiting stories on multiple levels because on the sort of level of, of like internal to the book, it's constantly looping back to her birth in 1910 and then tracing a, di- a slightly different path mm-hmm. each time. 
um, but with your memory of how things have gone on all the previous occasions. Right, um, yes. But and then also history itself, like, you know, the Second World War seems also to be a sort of pre-existing story that then this novel keeps kind of revisiting in different yes, ways. Yes, absolutely. And different aspects of the Second World War, right? In some cases, she spends it in Germany. In some cases, she spends it in the UK. I mean, one of the things that this conversation is making me think about is to look at works that retell or rework familiar stories and see those not as derivative in a bad way, but um, really that that's an interesting category of stories and storytelling in its own right. Mm. So I guess I would like to ask you, like, the next time I come across a book or a film that is retelling a story that I already know, what questions do you think I should be asking? One thing I like to ask of these like re-engagements or revisitations is what impulse is motivating it. Because I think that you want to feel that there is something driving it, right? Beyond in the mode of like the Disney remake commercial value. You want to feel like there is some kind of interpretive action going on. And I don't think that that necessarily means that it always has to be a literary fiction. I am actually very in support of fan fiction and stuff like that because I think there's something very interesting in that I sometimes wonder if I would have been a happier child if I'd like spent less of my adolescence writing terrible poetry and like some of it writing Harry Potter fan fiction or something (laughs) um well I I read a lot of Harry Potter (laughs) fan fiction as a child so I didn't think I was doing anything especially intellectual then but maybe maybe I was I mean I think that there's something that rereading gives us that is creative, right? Or mm. can give us that's creative. And, you know, to go right back to the story of your friend's mom reading War and Peace once every 10 years, right? There's something generative about that in which there's the hope that you have thought new thoughts or it has given you new thoughts or it has motivated new thoughts. It's created something new. And so I think to, yeah, to apply that as the first rubric of do I like this or not? Or is, it, is this a good revisitation? Like, what is the impulse? What is the thing that's driving it? And yeah, yeah, how and, is it helping me to make some imaginative leap that right, I wouldn't and, have and made? And how does it sort of make you re-engage with that original thing? Right? What does it send you back with? All right, Sarah Chihaya, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Sarah discussing Zadie Smith's novel On Beauty and the experience of gradually realizing that the story you're reading is reworking a story you already know. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was recorded by Jess Engerbretson and was produced by me, Milan Talunen, and by me, Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening. <laughs>